If we asked you for your definition of success, what would you say? For us, it's simple. Success is unique to each and every one of us. Welcome to The Success Revolution, the podcast that's changing the way we talk and think about success. We're The Step Up Club. I'm Alice. And I'm Fenella. And we're on a mission to get every single one of you feeling successful, no matter what that success looks like to you. In today's episode, we speak to journalist and author Laura Freeman, who talks candidly about how a love of literature became a lifeline as she recovered from anorexia, the evolution of her relationship with eating from the enemy to a central part of her life, and why she will never ever be an advocate of yoga, mindfulness, or clean eating as the wellness tools they are so often made out to be. Alice, I thought Laura was absolutely lovely. She was. Clever um, and, and fascinating. What did you think about her definition of success? Actually, it's funny that you just mentioned at the end of your little introduction there about her denial of all those kind of fads. I thought that was fascinating because I suppose as a younger than us woman, I would assume that those would be tools that she would immediately rely on just because of the landscape against which she's grown up with. And actually, she's got a much more intelligent spin on things. And I think I can speak for both of us that that was such an engaging part of the interview. It's just she's got her own point of view and isn't swayed by the masses. And actually, I suppose we look at millennials and think that they're all just this one big gang who follow suit with each other. But she really is considered in her thoughts. And that was really refreshing. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that and also admire that because I think I do get caught up in those Mm -hmm. things and so I think it's interesting that she's able to have such clarity around why she won't follow those trends. But also the thing that really stuck with me after we spoke to her was her use of language and I think it really tied in with everything we talked about around for her originally success was about being perfect and it was about really high achievement and she's really academic and that was obviously something that fueled her illness and she's come out the other side of that illness and she's used this sort of clever perfectionism almost as an antidote as well which I thought was amazing she is so considered in the way that she speaks and lots of people have very good vocabulary when they write, but she actually has great vocabulary yeah, she when does. she speaks. Yeah. And I was quite awestruck by the language that she used and the way that that thread, that words are so important and her skill with language is so important and it carries through everything. It was part of the cure for her anorexia. It's completely what she's crafted her life around. And not only that, but it's also even how she speaks. She's also, you would assume, as a recovering anorexic and also as a writer, that she's very solitary in her outlook as well. And maybe she is very solitary in how she lives her life. We don't know her that well. But her main definition of success really was actually using the amazing language that she's got, like you were just saying, to really help other people and help their healing too, which was, I thought, really moving. Mm. I'm really excited for everyone to listen to the episode because we absolutely loved recording this. And I think she's got a different spin. She's a different type of person. And I think that makes this one really unique as well. As you might know, as well as our podcast, which we love and we hope you do too, we're also the creators of Step Up School. 
and we have a few spaces left on our next round of Step Up School, both our Inner Circle course, which is our face-to-face -face course that takes place in London. It starts on the last Monday of January. We have a few spaces left and also our online course, Step Up School Online, which also starts at the end of January. If you want to know more information and get the latest discounts, then click across to stepupclub.co forward slash podcast discount and we hope to see some of you there. If you like what you hear on The Success Revolution, then don't forget to go back and listen to our other episodes that we've recorded so far. There are some really good ones in there. And don't forget to leave a review. It would mean so much to us and tell your friends to listen too. As you know, every episode of The Success Revolution is recorded in support of a different charity, a charity that's doing something amazing for women and girls. Today's episode is recorded at Laura's request in support of Smartworks, which is an incredible UK charity that provides high quality interview clothes and interview training to unemployed women in need. We've actually been to their warehouse yeah. and it's really a special it place. Is. They harness the power of clothes and confidence to allow a woman to be her best at a crucial moment in her career, a mission that is very much in line with ours here at Step Up. So to find out more about how you can help, go to smartworks.org.uk. All the info is in the show notes. Laura Freeman is an author, journalist and art critic. Her critically acclaimed first book, The Reading Cure, How Books Restored My Appetite, which we both loved, was published in February. A mindful, exquisitely written memoir of her passage away from anorexia, an illness she had suffered from since her early teens. The Reading Cure is as much a love story to literature as it is a tender exploration of recovery and womanhood. As if that wasn't enough, Laura also writes regularly about art, architecture, books and food for some seriously top-notch publications, including The Spectator, The Times, The Sunday Telegraph and World of Interiors. Her work has been shortlisted for Feature Writer of the Year at the British Press Awards and most recently the Sunday Times Young Writers Award. She's also a regular contributor to the Today Programme and the World Service. Laura, welcome to our Success Revolution podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So obviously the title of the podcast is The Success Revolution and as we just talked about before we started recording and as the name suggests we want to redefine success on different terms to how it's being defined currently to something more nuanced to something that's more individual to each of us so it's quite a big question but coming at it cold how do you think you define success? I think it's got to be waking up every day and rushing to your desk with excitement to do what you're doing whatever that may be I think if you can wake up with enthusiasm then you have won a great battle and has it always been like that for you no um not always I think it took me a long time to get going uh to get a first job even and then longer still to work out exactly the sort of job and career I wanted I went freelance three years ago and before that I worked at a newspaper and I think both have their pluses and their minuses but what I'm doing now I really do love there's a funny aside when we were setting up this interview Laura was organizing times and dates and she sent me an email saying I was your assistant, Alice. Do you remember? And what was the article that you wrote, the sidebar? I wrote when I was 19, I did work experience with you on the Times Fashion Desk and it was a sort of guide to how to be a Sloan Ranger because I went to very Sloany sixth form. So I had a sort of, you know, kind of moles intelligence about how you hung out on the King's Road in the noughties. So you obviously did know at 19 or you had a sense of what your career was going to look like. I think I knew then that I wanted to write. I was very keen at the time to go and be a fashion journalist. And I got work experience at Vogue, which was a great opportunity. And I got there and I'm afraid I didn't 
like it at all. And I thought, okay, well, I want to write, but I don't think fashion is exactly what it is. And then I was at university. And because I did a history of art degree, that perhaps sent me more in an arts direction than a fashion direction. And I think that's where my heart has been. What didn't you like about Vogue? I think it was just ultimately, if if you ask me, do I really, really want to write about couture or do I want to write about painting? The answer was painting. Funnily enough, I also did work experience as a fashion writer at Elle magazine when I was 20. And then I also... After that, decided. And I did work Not experience. to do it, make that what you will. decided to make So that's a one in three chance that you're just going to stick. But, but that's why I often say to people about the work experience thing, it's often not about working out what you do want to do, it's about working out yeah, what you totally. don't want yeah. to do. Yeah. And better to have a three-week stint of knowing I don't want to do that than sort of launching yourself on a two-year graduate scheme and thinking, oh, Lord, I really, really have yeah. done the wrong thing. Funny enough, I actually did a week's work experience in a law firm and hated it. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Oh, well. You, you followed that kind of choice, didn't you? So, obviously, we both read the book and we absolutely loved it we also published a book two years ago and that was a massive I still think getting our agent for our book was probably my most exciting career it was my career high I just thought wow you know publishing a book is really that seemed like success at the time what I realized is obviously you get booked in and you've got to write the book and you've got to promote it and you've got to have your network all those kinds of things but was that always the pinnacle for you was that always the goal to have a book published I think so I think at the point where you are writing regularly I think you begin to hunger after something a bit meatier because actually journalism it's always going to be a little kind of snack bite and I thought you know I want something that is a feast and that you can really sit down to and sort of lose yourself in I know what you mean about the finding the agent because it's about that sort of connection of saying in this rather kind of vague way this is I think the book I want to write and I haven't written it yet but I have all these high hopes and them saying I love the sound of this Mm. book and actually I had a slightly funny experience that when I went to meet the man who became my agent I said well this is the book I want to write and he said actually I always wanted to read a book about American kind of cop fiction and you know crime and you know all the food that they eat and I said well that sounds great too but I've never really read any American crime fiction he said oh all right you write your book then (laughs) Um, I had this awful moment where I thought oh he's not going to take me on because I don't want to write about American cops in diners eating stacks of pancakes but fortunately it all came together so what was the passage to writing the book as in it's such a sensitive subject something that I assume must have been quite insular for you to then deliver it on a plate to use a metaphor that suits the book how did you get from that point for it being inside your head being something very personal to deciding that you wanted to get it out into the world it was a long time coming when I was ill as a teenager, I always thought, well, I will write about this one day. But the story I had to tell then was really just a rather sad one. And it was really only when I was in my mid-20s, I'm now 30, that I thought, OK, well, this could be the story about how you really do get better and how you really do have a life and rewarding work and relationships and friends and how you build a future for yourself after anorexia. And I wrote almost as a sort of tester, a feature for The Telegraph, which was in many ways the book in miniature. It was about literature and how reading about food in books gave me the courage to try it in real life. And then that piece had a really lovely, really positive response. Particularly, I had two male friends get in touch, both of whom have had younger sisters who were ill, who have been ill, who are sadly still ill. And they said, you know, that it gave them and their parents hope. And I thought, well, if I could write a book that was hopeful, then that would be a book worth writing. And so I took that Telegraph piece to my agent. And after we talked about the American pancakes, um, he said, well, look, why didn't you go away and write me a first 
chapter or as an introduction. So I did that and he said, oh, well, I think I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. How are we going to convince the publisher? Can you write another chapter? I said, oh, all right. So I went away and I did that. And he said, oh, could you do one more? So I actually had written about 18,000 words and then thought, well, I'd be very crestfallen if nobody wants this because I'd poured quite a lot in. And then very luckily, he took that to publishers and there was interest and I got my deal. And then it was sort of right, well, write the next however many thousand words. We never let people say luckily. <laughs> because it is really good um, and I think you have to take ownership of your own brilliance as a writer but also ability to weave in the literature to a really moving story mm-hmm. and make it coherent which I don't think was necessarily an easy thing to do and can I say one other thing about luck or success or however you want to put it I had some people say you were so lucky to leave your job and get a book deal you know straight away your first book deal and I just want to say that I had several goes at book proposals taking them to agents taking them to publishers Mm. that really didn't go anywhere again you know writing 10,000 words that you know I would stay up all night doing and working you know over Christmas and Easter you know anytime I had away from the newspaper and they all fell flat Mm. and none of that time was wasted because I think it honed my thoughts and all writing is practice but I always want to say to people who say oh well you did it first time around I absolutely did not and I have novels and non-fiction and all sorts sitting in a drawer at home that may never see the light of day but they were worth going through. What is your attitude to failure? We talk about failure a lot in our step up school we talk about it ourselves we've been through failures. We're expert failures. We're expert failures <laughs> because we've learned the art of failing I suppose. Did that help you with those kind of failed book deals or how do you deal with failure? I think you feel very forlorn and you lick your wounds and you whinge to your friends and you cry to your mum or your boyfriend or your partner or your husband stupid by going on and on about it and then you pull yourself together and get on with the next thing. I think it's all right to feel morose about these things. I think none of us are brilliant at turning every failure into a success overnight. You know it's all right to feel that you know you've had a bum deal for a bit. Definitely. You mentioned a few times and before we started recording about the power of what you talk about in the book and what you talked about in the article to help people. I mean, it's quite a big thing to shoulder, to feel that it's your mission to help people either suffering from anorexia or with people in their family suffering from anorexia. Is that part of being successful to you? That that people feel they can turn to you. That people feel they can turn to you, that you feel that you are a voice of hope or an educator. At the beginning, when we posed the question, what is success to you, you said getting up and loving your job but then you straight away after that said actually it's writing a book that gives people hope so do you see that as part of your success even if it's not like the obvious definition I'd like to think so I'd like to think that is something that the book does I suppose you're always you're writing in because you want to read it you want someone to read it and and take something from it I think writing shouldn't be a sort of solipsistic act it should be about thinking you know what is the person at the other end who's going to open these pages what are they going to feel when they read it One of the things I found difficult and perhaps I hadn't sort of, you know, reckoned with was that once I'd written the book and I'd sort of done my catharsis at the laptop and I'd made my peace with my illness, I was then going to have to go on radio and podcasts and stand Mm. on stages at literary festivals and talk about it. And I found particularly in February when the book first came out and I had a real run of interviews I did this one radio interview and at the end the presenter said, would you like to say something inspiring to our listeners? No pressure. And I just thought, John, I'm exhausted. I'm really, really exhausted. I feel I have bared my soul. I feel I have laid it all out. I am tired. You know, I'm trying to kind of keep my own journalism career going while promoting a book, while sort of talking about my family, my body, my mind, my mental health. And I think that 
idea that, you know, sort of on cue like that, you can say something inspirational is quite tough. Mm. I was going to say actually about as a writer myself and having also written about difficult things in my life, it's very exposing and that I don't know what it's like to suffer from anorexia, but I can imagine that it's a very solitary illness and then you're very in your own head and then to be able to offer that out I mean thinking about people reading it in a very hopeful way is an amazing way to look at it because it is exposing as well how did that feel was there a point where you said I just can't do any more or what was the process of writing it like oh occasionally a bit sort of pulling a sword out of a stone bits of it came very easily I don't think I've ever really suffered from writer's block in the sense of sort of sitting there for day after day with nothing coming. One advantage of the newspaper training is you sort of always have an imaginary editor at your shoulders bellowing, you know, about deadlines and, you know, this paper is going off stone. So I'm usually pretty good at producing some words. I think the chapter I found really difficult, or the two chapters I found really difficult, were talking about having had a bit of a relapse several years ago at the height of clean eating mania that was interesting and that was a really sad thing to have to write about because actually the first five chapters had all really been about here I am on this kind of lovely smooth progression towards recovery it's all going to plan and actually having to relive on the page all of that collapsing and really being in a very terrible state again was very tough to do and then the chapter that follows which is about Virginia Woolf who is a writer who has given me enormous solace and comfort but ultimately you know she didn't beat all her demons and I think having to write about the end of her life I think that that was probably the hardest bit I had to do um I never find writing itself difficult or painful I love the process of sitting there tapping away but yeah the the sort of toll it can take writing about Mm. these very personal things is immense it's always difficult to go back through something incredibly painful and when it's also you know something that could have turned out very differently to how it did that's hard one thing that I wanted to ask you about is about how you thought about success when you were ill because also Mm -hmm. neither of us have suffered from anorexia we've both had difficult things in our life but but nothing like that and when you were very ill you actually mentioned that you thought well I will write about this one day Mm -hmm. so were you sort of looking at the same time as being very in the moment and very ill were you also looking ahead and thinking you know well there is a future and and I will do something different and this will be success someday or or was it just you know survival when I was probably most ill is sort of between about 14 and 15 and it's an illness that is very all-consuming it's extraordinary looking back actually how much I was able to do I was doing 12 GCSEs four of them were languages and I remember you know, coming home from school and doing lists and lists of Latin, Greek, French and Spanish irregular verbs and eating nothing and doing masses of exercise and somehow managing to fit 28 hours of work into 24 hours of every day. And I think then my idea of success was A-stars and being as thin as Mm. it was humanly possible, inhumanly possible to be. I think what happened when I was diagnosed, I struggled into school for another few weeks and then it was decided that really I needed to be on bed rest and the school sent work home for a bit and then it was decided that that really wasn't very helpful either so I really was just on bed rest and all I did was read books all day which is sort of you know how the book I've written has come to be written and I think in that period of illness I think at times I didn't want to get better I didn't really want a future I'm not sure how I would have 
seen success going ahead because I couldn't really see in ahead. Mm. But I think as I began to surface, I thought, you know, I love books. I love art. I want these to be a part of my life somehow. Does that answer it? I'm not sure that's quite quite clear. But And what about when you were ill again? I mean, that was one of the parts of the book, actually, that I found most relatable because, you know, I can be faddy. It's not the same thing, but I can be. And I know lots of people who are very faddy. We were talking about that earlier. And where that line is between being particular about what you're eating and actually really it's stepping over into really being not okay. When I first started doing interviews, I was very careful. I didn't really want to say anything particularly negative about clean eating because I know some people who have spoken out against it have actually had quite a lot of vitriol on social media. But I am very, very uneasy about this idea that there are clean and dirty foods, Mm. that there are foods that we cannot digest. You know, we can't digest gluten. We can't digest dairy. We shouldn't really be eating meat. We can't eat sugar. Because it just, it simply isn't true. It is true in some cases. Some people are lactose intolerant. Some people cannot digest gluten. But the vast majority of us can eat all of these things with no great harm coming to us. And what worries me is the more you restrict what you eat, actually, the more you restrict the sort of life you can have. Mm. And I think about friends who travel a lot for business, who work really, really long hours, who have very demanding jobs. When they decide that actually they can only eat this incredibly narrow range of things, they're making their life that bit harder when they're doing the late night in the office and all the men, you know, order a pizza and they're sitting there not eating anything until they get home at half past 11 and they can have their quinoa this or chia that. You know, they're basically starving themselves and exhausting themselves to adhere to a set of principles that have no basis, really, in bodily fact. Mm. And I think if you want a successful career, you've got to eat, yeah. you've got to fuel yourself. A lot of it is about appearances and about and comparison, but and a lot of it is also, I was going to yeah. say, about control. Yeah. I mean, you know, we know anorexia isn't really at its heart to do with food. Yeah. I think... It absolutely is about control. And and I was at a school where I was very unhappy. And because you can't magic yourself out of a school, the thing that you can see as control of is what you eat. And and I think it's probably true in people who are in jobs that they hate or they're in relationships that they hate. Actually, what you can focus on is your breakfast Mm -hmm. and that you can grasp in your hands and do what you want with. I heard Stephen Fry interviewed recently about his bipolar, his relationship with bipolar. And the interviewer asked him if you could remove that from your life would you like if you could go back and take that out and he said very eloquently more eloquently than I'm going to say something along the lines of if you remove the devil then the angel goes as well and it is very much part of him do you agree with that does that resonate with you it does I think you can't change what happened I was anorexic it's a part of me it is you know it'll always be my little devil I think the thing you need to get to is the point where the angel is the bigger thing and and the angel is on your side and together you face down the devil but I don't think there's any point sort of trying to wave a wand to be a different person I'm always going to be a particular fastidious tidy person I accept that now it's okay do you think it's enhanced you do you think going through that very difficult journey has enhanced you as a writer and as a friend or you know as a person I think having had a slightly unusual education and ending up doing actually only five GCSEs in the end, but having read masses and masses of books, I think that probably has made me a better writer. Mm. I think it's certainly when you have any experience of illness, whether it's a mental or a physical illness, I think it makes you much more patient, much more tolerant, much 
more kind to other people who are struggling. I sometimes see people who've actually never been ill in their lives and they're often quite brusque about anybody who's struggling or who is sad. And I think it just makes you a little bit more tender-hearted to other people. No, I definitely agree. So slightly changing tack and thinking about, about back onto success. Our parents know each other. We actually don't know each other very well, but our parents know each other really, really well. They're really old friends from university and they're lovely, but they are incredibly clever, both of them, and very successful in a really traditional sense of the word, in a corporate sense. Mm. And we know that family expectation and family career paths have a huge impact on career path, on your success. How much impact, you know, was there pressure? How has that impacted on what you've done? Certainly academic pressure. I think, you know, my parents, they both did well at school. They both did well at university. And I don't think there was pressure in the sense that, you know, they weren't standing over me as I was doing my homework. But I think it was just inconceivable to them that you would do anything other than do really well at school and go on to Oxford. That's just what everybody did. And that is a pressure in its own way. I sometimes talk about how, while there are various heroines in the book, like Elizabeth David or MFK Fisher or Virginia Woolf, the real heroine is my mum, who did so much to help me get better. And she is a heroine in all sorts of other ways. I think she was very, very determined and strong and brave at work in a very male environment. She was at Marks and Spencer's. She started off as a knicker measurer. She's always very embarrassed when people say this, but that was her first job was that title. Even a profession? It, 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 was, it was a good graduate job. And uh, I think she felt a sort of little bit that, you know, that having got a history degree, she wanted to do something a little bit grander. But over time she did, and she worked her way up the corporate ladder and she sort of missed class ceiling smasher and she ended up on the board at MS. and she's an inspiration in many ways though my career is completely different and takes it you know entirely different form but she often gives me advice that I try and put into practice can you give us some examples of some very good advice well I love what she says that if she was ever the only woman actually she was always the only woman in a meeting and there would be tea and biscuits in the center of the table and she said I would never ever ever pour I would never offer mm, I would never advice. put myself in that role of being the sort of carer or the facilitator there's a quote in the book that I love which I'm just going to quote back to you now about happiness I just wanted your opinion on mm. it in particular Merlin's advice to his young apprentice Wart that when you're low or sad, the thing that never fails, the thing you have absolute control of, is to teach yourself something, to learn something new. It made me realise that when I was having a bad day and they do come around, I can go to a museum, read a book or go for a walk. I can fill my brain with something that isn't my own nitty gritty unhappiness. Can you tell us a little bit about learning and that being part of your life and your success and your fulfilment? Yeah, this is the drum I want to bang. And I always read that Merlin quote because I do think it is true. I think if you have a mind that is sometimes against you, and Lord knows mine is, I think one of the best things you can do is divert it. Mm. Is why in some ways I am not altogether sold on yoga and mindfulness. I think they work for some people, but I don't think they are universally helpful. In my experience, that habit of trying to still your mind and empty it actually often leaves a void in which, you know, the sort of little devils that Stephen Fry describes can get in. But I actually think if you fill it with art and music and books, mm. I think it drives out a lot of this other negative stuff. And I think that knowledge is confidence. I think the more you know, the kind of braver you feel, you think, 
well, if I got a different haircut or if I lost weight or if I had better clothes, would I feel more confident? And I think that put as much energy into kind of making your brain presentable and beautiful. And I think that way happiness and confidence lies. That's great advice. I remember when I was at school, we did a debate. I was in the debating team. And our most popular debate was, I would rather be thin and pretty than wise and witty. And I always remember it because 90% of the girls at this school, my school, voted to be thin and pretty, not wise and witty. Although there's a huge movement in body positivity and authenticity, I still don't think we've really got away from that. And I don't know, that's something that we're always trying to do with Step Up Club and Step Mm -hmm. Up School to encourage learning and growing and authenticity and valuing your mind and valuing yourself. But I don't know how we move forward with that. I mean, I always think, thank God, thank God, thank God, I was a teenager when I was, the idea of being a teenager today with Instagram. I mean, how would you navigate that? At least I was able to have my horrible illness in private. Mm. Sort of the idea that you would have to take 15 selfies a day Mm. and post them online, you know, to be commented on or liked or not liked. And what that does to a person's Mm. sense of self. Goodness me. What's your relationship like with Instagram? Oh, oh, sort of very Marmite, very love-hate. I like bits of it and you get to see lots of beautiful things. I quite like posting what I'm reading and what I've seen, but it is a huge distraction. And when a lot of my job is reviewing books or writing about artists and actually having to think and I'm you know, digest a lot of information and and presumably, you know, produce 800 nice words at the end of it. I think that little sort of gremlin of Instagram going off in the background is really unhelpful. And I mean, I'm ashamed to say, I sometimes go, I'm deleting it. This is it. I'm going to turn it off. And I delete it. And 15 minutes later, I reinstall it. (laughs) Well, I tried to, because I've got our step up account and also my personal account. And I tried to delete my, did I tell you this? I tried to delete my personal account. So I went in just for a break, not forever. So I went in and I logged out of Alice Olin's and then I flicked across, well, it automatically flicked back on Step Up Club. And then I just, out of curiosity, went back and it was still there. I couldn't log out of it. It it made it completely impossible. Either I had to completely log out of everything and I just take it off my phone or I couldn't log out of one of my accounts. It's funny because I don't ever look at my personal account. I have no compulsion to scroll through it but that's a deliberate self-preservation because I found that when we started and I was doing it a lot it gave me a lot of negative thoughts so I just don't do it see for me I don't get negative thoughts but I hate the distraction of it yeah. it's that kind of oh just have a quick look just to see and I don't ever feel bad about what I see because I don't really care what other people look like to be honest but I don't like my lack of willpower of mm. just last night I left my phone upstairs it was actually lovely and I came upstairs and my parents had FaceTimed me about 10 times from Italy because they're there at the moment. But apart from that, no one had got in touch. <laughs> so I feel like one thing we haven't talked about, although we've alluded to it in our lovely metaphors, we haven't really talked about food. And when you invited us here to come, for, well, when we emailed you and said, please, can we do a podcast? You said, yes, come to my flat. Can I cook you lunch? And food's obviously really a huge thing for you. I think the first sentence that you said on the podcast used a feast metaphor I mean every line is basically quotable um, number one quotable I was (laughs) quoting it while I was reading it to everybody I saw and number two really about food it was obviously important when you were ill in one way Mm. it's still really really important to you now how would you describe your relationship with food how does it act as a sort of a background to your life now well, my relationship is a great deal better than it was. <laughs> I think for starters, 
There was this wonderful book review. Craig Brown reviewed my book for the Mail on Sunday. And he said that getting an anorexic to write a book about food was a bit like getting an atheist to write a book about God. And I like this. And people are sometimes a bit sort of confused that I've written this really quite foodie book. I think what I've had to do is almost do a complete re-education of myself. Because for such a long time, food was the enemy and it was this sort of bald breakdown of fat and calories and something just to be avoided, you know, using ever more extreme measures. And one of the ways I have persuaded myself that food is an important and enriching part of life is to think about it as food in literature, food in art, food in history. I've definitely been helped along by having a mum who's a wonderful cook. And also by having a partner who I describe in the book as having an invincible appetite. And um, whenever you say to him, do you want seconds? And he kind of ponders for a bit and then he goes, oh, go on then. And I always like that because I think actually as a sort of motto for life, oh, go on then is Mm. quite a good one. Whether it's go for promotion or whether it's, you know, take on a project, I think you should say, oh, go on then. And he has had a job in France this year and I've been going back and forth to see him. And I think Paris has been a little bit of a test of some of my food fears because it is creamy, it is rich, there is a lot of cheese. But actually, I think I've done pretty well and actually kind of rather fallen in love with things like Yves Flottant, which are those kind of lovely That's meringues. That's so good. So good and such kind of nursery food. And I think one of the good things about being able to eat with a slightly more adventurous spirit is it also means you can travel. Mm. And Andy, my partner, has been a brilliant traveling companion. And I wrote in the last chapter that about sort of, you know, well, I should read lots of books about Japan and go to Japan. He said, well, look, you've put it in print. It's in hardcover. We're going. So having written the book, we did go. And I think I would never, ever have imagined when I was most ill that I could get on a plane and go to the other side of the world and feed myself for three weeks. Do you have plans for another book? Where do you go from here? It seems so wrapped up in your life and so personal. I don't know where you would go next. Well, I don't want to write about myself anymore. I'm, <laughs> I am thoroughly sick of myself. I would like to write, I hope, a biography. And I'm beginning to do research on the biography of a figure in the 20th century in the British art world. And so we'll see if something comes of that. And so if everybody listening who is very inspired by your path, as I think lots and lots of people will be in all different kinds of ways. You've given us actually at least 10 pieces of invaluable advice. Is there any other piece of advice that you would give? Someone sitting there thinking, gosh, if I could do what Laura's done, get over something really difficult in my life or publish a book or travel and I don't have the confidence to do it, is there a piece of advice, one piece of advice that you would give? Be inspiration. Goodness. (laughs) I think... Be brave. But I would caveat that with saying it is fine to be scared. The idea that we can all be brave all the time is nonsense. You can be scared, but be brave with it. And if you want to leave your job and go freelance, do that. If you want to get on a plane and do that. If you've got to give a speech or record a podcast or go on the Today programme, however much your hands are shaking, do it. I think that's great advice. Oh, well, thank you so much, thank Laura. You. Thank you that very was much. brilliant and fascinating. And I could have sat here for much longer talking about food. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job we ate <laughs> our event. If you enjoyed the podcast and it sparked some thoughts about your success, please don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening. Again, all the information is in the show notes. Don't forget to head to stepupclub.co to find out more about how Step Up School could help you achieve your career dreams. See you next week, same time, same place. We've got plenty of incredible women, each with her own definition of success up our sleeves.